So last week we talked about community. When we talked about on our Vision Sunday, where is God leading us as a church? Where is he calling us as a church? We had to acknowledge that God calls the, the very existence of the church itself is evidence of the fact that God has determined that we, as we attempt to follow Jesus in these lives of ours, should not do so alone. That we are more effective in every way when we are brought together in community, which is why we said Jesus prays to the Father in John 17 before his death. Jesus prays and he says, Father, and he prays that God would bring us together, would, would make us one in the very same way that he's one with the Father. Now, what Jesus also indicates in that prayer that we didn't talk so much about last week is, is this, how impossible that kind of community really seems to be in terms of Jesus saying the reason why people will know God is real by looking at the community you have built is because it is so hard to build community. It is so hard for people to truly live this way. And so it can seem kind of discouraging. On one hand, Jesus is saying, uh, do this thing, be together, even though it seems like life would be so much better and easier if you just did things on your own or in the isolation of a few people that are like you. Instead, you should build community because it's better. But here's the catch. That community is so difficult to build and to create real, actual, genuine community that it's almost like a miracle when it happens. In fact, it is a miracle when it happens, a miracle of God. Only the Holy Spirit can produce something like that in a group of people. And so as you attempt to do this thing that seems impossible, which is why probably it feels discouraging and makes you feel weary oftentimes, know this, that the community that you build will be a testimony to the greatness of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. What that is called... What happens there is unity. So last week we talked about community, and this week we're talking about how a group of people who are all different and want different things and care about different things and like different things and have different personalities and different all backgrounds and different uh, cultures and, and everything, how, how all of these different people can somehow experience something called unity which is where we have something in common and it binds us and we're going in the same direction together. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 and we're going to look at just three verses this morning. And hopefully that means we'll spend less time looking at some verses this morning than we did last week, but there's no promises. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 this morning. And in this series over the next three weeks, as we focus on unity as a church, we're going to just look in chapter four of Ephesians as we do. And this morning, we're talking a lot about really our identity and who we are and how it begins there. This is what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, uh, Paul wrote this letter from jail, 
And uh, he didn't actually write it specifically and only to the church in Ephesus. Most would agree that this letter was intended to be circulated amongst a number of different churches. But we know that Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, is such a significant one. It was one that served such a huge role in the life of the early church that we see this name attributed to it. In our very first verse here, we read this, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, which makes sense because he's in jail, he is a prisoner, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The Bible describes the Christian life as being utterly unlike anything else that could be compared to it. We go through our lives comparing ourselves to other people. And by comparing ourselves to other people, we come up with this idea of what it looks like to be good and what it looks like to be bad, what it looks like to be right and what it looks like to be wrong. And as we do that, we can usually get pretty far in life feeling pretty okay about ourselves. But if we ever encounter the truth of God as revealed in his word, it shows us a different standard for what is really good and what is really bad. And often, for many, we read that, we encounter that, and we say, there is something here that strikes me as being true. True in a way that surpasses any cultural group of people, any time in which the world may exist, any, any civilization, or, uh, or any set of rules even. There's something true here, and what that truth is, is it is, it is a standard for what is good and a standard for what is not good, for what is evil and wrong and cause of death and destruction and all that we see in the world, and it surpasses just me comparing myself to you or to you or to anybody else and making myself feel a little bit better because of that. When I encounter the truth of what is really good and what is really not good, then if there is in me any sense of self-awareness, then I realize how far I come from measuring up to that standard. I mean, it's one thing if I compare myself to certain people. I can do okay in that comparison. But if I compare myself to what God calls good and what God calls evil, then I am in a lot of trouble. And so if I bring any sense of self-awareness to this, then I respond either by being so overwhelmed by my failure to measure up to this thing that I just... I go away, I turn my, my back to it, I walk away from it, and I say, I can't look at this and I don't want to. I'm not interested in this and what it has to say about who I might be. Or I am humbled by it. And that humility leads to repentance. And I realize that I truly do want the life that is found in God. Now, at that point in which humility and brings repentance, then that all of a sudden is where those words that you hear so often, Jesus saves or those other words you hear so often, Jesus loves you, all of a sudden have a certain sense of meaning to you. Because if it's true, then that means that despite what I see in myself, when I compare myself to this standard, I recognize that Jesus, the good news of the gospel, is that he says, good news. Yes, this is true of you. But because God loves you, Jesus says, I can save you. And that is the good news of the gospel. Amen? And so the good news of the gospel is that I can be saved and I am transformed. And so when that happens, if I accept that forgiveness, if I recognize, man, like I can have a life in what Jesus has done for me. Amen. 
We are then saved. We are cleansed. We have been called from darkness into life, light. We are new creations. We're rescued. We're restored. We're redeemed. We're brought back to God. And because he truly does love you, he isn't just cleaning up your past to a certain point and saying, okay, now good luck in the future. He's saying, hang on, don't, don't go anywhere. He says, I've got a job for you to do. I've got something for you. I have a purpose for you in mind. And he calls us to something. Now, from this point on, there's two options for us. There's two options. One is we say, thank you so much. God, you're great. I really appreciate it. And now I'm going to go and I'm going to do things a lot better this this time around. I've been born again. I've been given a new life. And so I'm going to try and do better this next time around. And we say, thanks, God. You've done your part. I appreciate it. I can do it. I know I can. In fact, hey, there's this big new book I've been introduced to, and it's got a bunch of rules in it. That should help. That's probably what makes the difference this time around. Or we say, instead of walking away from God and saying, thanks, God, you're good. You saved me. Now I can move on without you. Instead of saying, I'm going to go back to just comparing myself to everybody else and deciding what I think makes sense and what's good and what's bad. We say, well, I've been called to something. And so it's time to go to work. I wake up and I live each day in my life with a calling, something that I've been called to. You see, from the very beginning, the church would encounter a a problem, an issue in the lives of Uh, as community begins to be formed by people who have been changed and transformed by the gospel and by Jesus. And that problem is this. People would encounter God and then they would wake up and they would choose to not actually respond to the calling of God, take it up, which is his job, which is he says, now that you've been saved, I want you to go and I want you to bring the good news of my gospel to others. You have been called to this thing. You've also been called to live a certain way. You've been called not just to find your salvation in Jesus once, but to actually each and every day wake up and say, I am only able to do anything that I do each and every day because still the power of Jesus in my life. And because that power of Jesus is present in my life every single day and has changed everything for me and will change everything moving forward, I want other people to have that. And that is what I've been called to. There are some who will live out, who will live in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which they have been called, and there are some who won't. And this begins to be a problem that is evident in the church from the very beginning. The rich guy will come to Jesus, but will not ultimately want to deal with his love of money. The respected guy will come to Jesus but who doesn't ultimately want to deal with the pride that he finds in his position in the world. The promiscuous man or the promiscuous woman will come to Jesus, but will not ultimately want the self-control that comes in actually letting go of that sin in their life. The citizen of Rome who's enjoying this comfortable, pretty good life under the empire will come to Jesus, but not actually want to wrestle with and let go of that, that association they have that they may find more of their identity in than even following Jesus himself. The self-righteous person, the drunkard, these people will come to Jesus, but then when that sin is still there, instead of saying, I have to take this thing seriously because I've been called to something, I've been called to represent Christ 
Instead saying, no, that's okay, I'll figure this stuff out on my own and I'm going to go back to deciding what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong. From the beginning of the church, the big problem in the church was not that when people chose to stop following Jesus, uh, that they would walk away from the faith. The big problem in the church was that when people chose to stop following Jesus, they wouldn't walk away from the faith. I mean, what would that be like, right? What would it be like if one by one, person by person, people would decide, I don't really actually want to do this anymore, but I'm still going to consider myself a follower of Jesus. I'm still going to even be a part maybe of this group of people because it's just as easy as showing up and being there in person, right? And from the beginning, there would be this issue, and this issue would be that there are people in the church who are uh, not living in a manner that is worthy to the calling to which they've been called. The language that's used here is the way you would talk to your child when you're scolding them and saying, you're making the family look bad. All right, if you've ever pulled a kid out of a restaurant, had a conversation with them, right? I've never done this, and this was never done to me when I was a kid, but I hear that people do this. You say, this isn't how we are. This isn't how we will behave. This isn't who we are as a family, and we're not going to do this and act this way. This is not you living in a manner that is worthy to this family that we're a part of. You understand what I mean by that. That's the language that Paul is using, and he's saying, first and foremost, that there's this issue, and it's an issue that would exist from that point on throughout the history of the church, that instead of walking away that people would stay, but would just not actually live out this gospel, not live out even in obedience, this faith, and would simply be associated with it. When you ask the question of who we are, Paul tells us here in the beginning of this chapter, first and foremost, the basis of unity, the basis of community, the basis of anything else that we have moving forward, this is who you are. You are people with a job to do. You've been called out. And you are to live in a manner that is worthy of that calling. You are a people with a job to do. Well, if we have a job to do, that changes things a little bit, doesn't it? Because there's something that changes in you and in your life when you've been given and you've accepted a job. You say, it's now not just about me, right? But it's about this other thing that we're accomplishing together. He goes on to say what it looks like to do this, because here's the question that this begs then. And this is a pretty big question for the church, for anybody who would say, I'm a believer, a follower of Jesus. And this is a really big question for people who aren't followers of Jesus, looking in from the outside going, so what exactly does it mean to do this? And the question is this, what is a real Christian like? What is a real Christian supposed to do? How are real Christians supposed to behave? You could have a lot of debates about what, the, what it means to be a real Christian and what it means to not be a real one. And what Paul is essentially saying is he's spelling it out for the church and saying, let me tell you guys what it looks like to live in a manner that is worthy of the calling that you have received. Or in other words, this is how you act as a part of this family. This is first and foremost, humility. You are to act with humility. Now, prior to the early church, there was no word in the Greek language 
that was a good word for humility. In fact, the entire concept of humility was a bad thing. It was the equivalent of saying, therefore, be abusive with one another. Therefore, uh, be dumb together. These are objectively bad things. And at the time, there was no positive connotation with the idea of being humble. To say to a person that you should be humble was to tell them to do something that was not a good thing. No one wanted to be seen as humble. No one should be trying to live their life in a humble way. That would be like saying, go and be destitute and make bad choices. We don't want that for each other. And so when uh, the Bible begins to speak of humility, when Jesus himself came and sort of changed everything by showing that humility was a path in the kingdom of God. That completely changed the way that people understood what humility was. So Paul says to them, he says, be humble. And the great definition of humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Thinking of myself less often than I do. And thinking of others more often. This is what Christian humility looks like. It's rooted in Jesus and the way he lived like we talked about last week. He says gentleness, which is meekness and mildness. Be meek and mild with each other. Do not be harsh with people. It might seem satisfying to be harsh with people. It might feel good to be harsh with people. But he says the Christian, the real Christian, is meek and mild. They are gentle with people as they encounter them. Patience. And the type of patience that's being talked about here is defined this way. A God-given restraint in the face of opposition. This isn't just, man, this is a long red light. This isn't just, when is this person going to go at this stop sign because I live in Oregon and I'm not going first. This isn't just, I'm waiting for this person to cross the road and they're not done yet. That's not the patience here. This patient is as God-given restraint in the face of opposition. Something is opposing me that is not good, and I am going to restrain myself in that situation because that's what it means as a Christian to be patient. Bearing one another in love. Now, this is almost identical to patience, but when these two words are used together like this, there's this reason why it's translated as bearing in love, and it is this idea of like holding a weight of something. You're bearing the weight of a thing. When something bears the weight of another thing, there's a heaviness to it. There's a burden to it. It's not probably that comfortable. And he's saying, you are literally going to like hold the burden and the weight of other people and their issues and their things. And that's what it looks like to simply bear up with one another in love. Instead of saying, I'll deal with mine and you deal with yours. You say this crazy revolutionary thing, which is I will also bear your burden. I will also carry your load for you. And he closes it with eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We are not eager to maintain unity. We, we tend to be eager for the opposite of it, right? I learned this in school. The first time there was a fight and everybody in the playground ran to the fight and did not stop the fight, but watched the fight. We are not eager for unity. No, we are eager for the opposite, 
It's more exciting. It's more interesting. There's something that we like about it in some way. But the idea of being eager for unity, well, that's a little bit nuts. Well, then how on earth could we find it? Because we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, theologically, this is important. Nothing we do makes the Spirit of God any more or less united or unified. So what this is saying is not we do a thing and then the Spirit has unity. What it's saying is it's saying the Spirit is what gives us unity and draws us together. If you've ever seen those, you know, videos on YouTube or something of like the size of the universe, you know, and it talks about like, you know, all these different, it talks about Earth and then the moon, the solar system, the, the galaxy, and it talks about then the sun and the other galaxy and then everything, and it pulls out and it pulls out and it's like your mind is being blown by this, right? And we're just the pale blue dot or however you want to look at it. Now imagine all of that, and now imagine a God who just opens his mouth and makes all of that come into existence. Now imagine that as you accept Jesus, that God now dwells inside of you through the Holy Spirit. Well, that would change a person, wouldn't it? That would cause something different to happen in you, wouldn't it? What that Spirit brings you, when that Spirit is present in your life, the Spirit of God is unity. And so the person who is following Christ is eager to maintain that unity that the Holy Spirit is bringing about inside of you. There's a reason why he's emphasizing these things to the church at this time, and it's because the church is struggling with disunity. The church is struggling with division, with strife, with debate. The church is constantly tempted to break off into these groups and these factions rather than stay a single unified church. There are so many things that are giving them disunity. There is the, there is the fact that the church at the time is made up of Jews and Gentiles, these two cultural groups of people who could not be more different. You have your person who is, who is like polished and, and looks good in a religious environment, has grown up their whole life in that, and then you have the person who couldn't look anything more, who couldn't look more opposite from what you would think of as a church person, a religious person. And you have those two types of people trying to do church together because God commanded them to. You have slaves versus their masters, their very masters, actually worshiping in their master's home, now in an environment where the slave is not a servant, but is just an equal with that master as they're serving in their home or as they're, as they're worshiping in their home. You have people having these crazy theological debates. I don't think the Bible says that. I think the Bible says this. No, it doesn't say that. It says this. They have divisions about leaders. No, I'm from Paul. No, I'm from Apollos. No, I'm from Peter. No, 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 no. You're from the wrong one. You've got to be from the right one, the one that I'm from. Everybody knows he's the best one. These people have rivalries. And a lot of it just comes down to bad behavior. Just bad behavior. It's just people saying, no, 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 I haven't walked away from Christ. I still follow and love Christ. But they embrace gossip and lies and rivalry. They embrace ambition and greed and arrogance. They embrace these things. And so the church has constantly struggled with this issue of unity. So what does it mean to be a real Christian? What it means to be a real Christian is all of these things which ultimately bring, if we can do these things, if we attempt to do these things even, unity where we're all combined together. 
we deal with so many of these same kinds of disunity, temptations for disunity within the church. And you take all these things and you add on to them the insider versus the outsider, which is like the Jew and the Gentile. You take on to them the, 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 the fact that if we've been a part of this for a long time, then we naturally are going to value people like us. And if we've come from the outside, then we're naturally going to value people more like that. And, and we're going to struggle to value each other. That, 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 our country itself is divided, and there's no way that that doesn't seem to have an impact on the way that we worship together and how we interact with each other. We still have theological debates today. We have preferences, and we have vision. We have, I think we should care more about this. I think we should care more about this. I think we should do this more. I think we should do this more. In fact, because of sort of the way that we do church in America, which is kind of preference and affinity-based, this idea of like, well, one, there's a church for everyone, there's a church that fits everyone, that makes it hard to be unified because the moment that something doesn't fit us, we go, well, this isn't for me anymore, or at least I want it to still be, or I want it to become about me because it isn't yet, or we simply lose track of our priorities. It's so easy to see another person who's lost track of their priorities. You watch a kid's movie with like the... We were watching Hook the other day with like the workaholic dad, you know, and you're like, man, look at that guy. That guy's such a workaholic, you know. Then all of a sudden you find yourself watching Hook one day going, hey, at least he sent somebody to the game to record it, you know. He's a busy guy, right? He's got a lot on his plate. He's got a lot going on. Let's not give this guy a hard time. I'm sure he loves his kid, you know, right? It's so easy. You, you see the couple fighting in the movie and you go, I can't believe people would, would, would let their marriage get to that point. You see people treating each other a certain way. And you say, I can't believe people would let it get to that point. It's so hard to see when our own priorities have changed and things aren't as important to us as they should be, as they used to be, as they were in the beginning. There are so many different things that try to pull us apart from each other there are so many different things that cause us to be disunited. But what Paul says is that we're to experience the unity of the Spirit. And how do we do it? This is how we act with one another. And this tells us what it looks like to act this way, but the question still exists. Like, none of this is that new of information, I don't think, to most here. You go, yeah, uh, we've heard about humility, we've heard about gentleness, we've heard about patience, and yeah, these are all good things to do. In fact, I'm really good at these things, and I'm not the problem, right? It's everybody else who's the problem, if there's a problem with unity at all. The question isn't even as much, what does it look like? The question is, how does it actually happen? Like, how do you actually bring a group of people together, and we can actually live in such a way that unity comes as a result because it seems to happen rarer and rarer, more rarely. Although it seems like if Paul's talking to them, it probably didn't happen as often as maybe we often think that it did. And it is in just these last five words that he gives us the answer. In the bond of peace. We are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. How do we maintain it? In the bond of peace. In the bond of peace. By aiming to be at peace with each other and making that our first priority, peace with one another is a priority to us. If that is going to be your priority, then that changes the way that you live. It limits the way that you live and the things that you do. And so Paul uses this word that is so personal to him at this very time. He says, that peace that you try to have with each other 
will be a bond to you. Now, you hear bond of peace, you think, yeah, a bond, right? Like a connection with each other. We're all supposed to be, have, have bonds to keep each other together. No, if you translate this word, what it literally means translated is a shackle, is a restraint. Gee, I wonder why Paul's thinking like this. Is a restraint. As Paul is sitting in a Roman jail chained to another guard, they had a pretty effective way of keeping people from escaping. They just chained you to another guard. As he's sitting in a jail, chained to another guard, bonded, shackled, limited in his ability to do anything, he refers to this piece as a, a set of shackles that will limit you in what you would otherwise do. Burv. Burv works for Westland Police Department. All right, guys, this is how you thought it would end. You wondered. You wondered. Yeah. No, no, no. We're going full on. You have the right to remain yes, silent. Yes, this is how... Like that's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> you have the right to an attorney. No. He's, I, he's I don't think he's... Yeah, he's just... If you can't afford one, and I know you can't, that means you're going to be stuck paying for it. So anything you say must be freely and voluntarily said. Do you understand your rights? I do. All right. All right. Well, talk. We know you're going to. So this... This is how a lot of you thought it would end. I'll admit, right? This is peace. This. This right here is what it looks like for Christians to live at peace with each other. Is to choose. Would you choose to live your life this way? Would you choose this? Would you choose to restrain yourself and shackle yourself and give up your rights so that you can be at peace with another. <laughs> How many would willingly go through their life with their hands clasped behind their back? How much does this limit what I can do? It limits it. I will try as hard as I can, but it limits it. All of a sudden, the things that I can do, that I want to do, that I should do, that I think I should do, are so greatly limited by this choice that I've made, this thing that I've done, by simply choosing the bonds of peace. All right. Amen. Are you going to let me go? Because I really hope so. Yeah, let's, yeah, all right. Yeah, two thumbs up from Bruce. That's good for me. I promise, I promise. I'm going to think about my ways and... Oh, my kids are so, my kids better not see this. Oh, <sighs> yeah, put that on the internet, everyone will watch it. You'll never believe what happened. Click here to find out. Thanks, Burf. I know that was hard for you. I appreciate you doing that. <laughs> Who would willingly choose to shackle themselves? to quite literally limit the things that you can do in your life. When Paul is describing peace, what he is saying is he's saying that if you decide that you are serious about being at peace with one another, then the choice you are making is to limit the way you live your very life. There are things that I am able to do, that I won't do, because they might be harmful for you. They might be harmful for my community. 
There are things that I'm free to do that I won't do because they might be wrong in the context of community. There are things that I have a right to say or, or I feel that I have the right to feel or to think. But it might not be the most constructive thing if I'm living in community with a brother or a sister and I'm seeking unity with them. And so there are things that I won't say. That I, well, that's a hard one for me. There are things that I won't say that I want to say. I will challenge my feelings. I will question my thinking because those things may not produce peace. The example given to us by Paul is simple. The example he is giving to us is he is saying, I expect Christians to be the people who live limited, who choose to live differently than they would if they were by themselves because that's the only way that you'll be able to be at peace with each other. And that is not an easy thing to think about doing. We value our, our ability to do things. We value our freedoms. We value our liberty. We, we see these things as God-given. And yet, what Paul says to us is he says so clearly that what it looks like for a Christian to seek to be at peace with another Christian, if you're really serious about it, is to limit yourself. We know this is true. We know this. If you enter into a marriage with someone, you are limiting yourself and your freedoms and your abilities and the things that you would do because you see that that relationship requires it and you're willing to. As you parent children, uh, you choose to give up things in your life. As you take on a job and you get up and go to work instead of sitting in your sweatpants, although now we can work in our sweatpants, but you get what I'm saying. You choose to do that willing to give up what you could otherwise do. Who we are is a people who are called. What we do is these things he spells out that I don't think are new for us. But how we do it, how we do it, what makes it even possible for us to live this way is the bonds of peace, the shackles of peace. Paul uses prisoner language a lot here. I think it's near to his mind. But he's not just talking about himself being arrested and in jail. He's saying that we will choose to live as prisoners for Christ. For the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. This is what it looks like. If you want an image in your mind, and it helps you to think of it as me with handcuffs on. That is what peace looks like. How badly would we love for it to be the case that what Paul actually says to us here is the secret to peace is to find just the right community of people and then take them off and live as freely as you want. How badly do we wish that's what Paul said? But that is not what he says because that is not true and that is not how it works. We talked last week about how long we seek to find the right kind of community until we learn the hard lesson that community has to be built around us. And we have to be a part of that building and that constructing. In the very same way, the best kind of community isn't one in which we let loose of everything. It is one in which we say, I will restrain myself for the sake of unity with my brother, unity with my sister, unity with the body. That is the first and most important step in having unity. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for you. And there is no way that we can just 
try on our own effort. There's no way that we can just work hard enough or try hard enough to be humble and patient and gentle with each other and then do a better job of anybody else and feel good about ourselves at the end of the day, God. We do not have the strength and the power and the discipline to do that, and so we are grateful for Christ. And as we prepare ourselves to take communion now, as we prepare ourselves to worship you, God, we celebrate the fact, we are grateful for the fact that you call us simply to take this first step of being willing to limit ourselves, to shackle ourselves for the sake of the unity that you long to see in your church, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.